Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches vacation.com. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to this evening's <laughs> meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Eric Siegel, chair of the club's personal growth forum and your host. We invite everyone to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org for a complete listing of all Commonwealth Club events and to register for any of our events. We're hearing a lot about how jobs are changing in this post-pandemic world. We're hearing about remote work, quiet quitting, and layoffs. But the keys to career success essentially remain the same. That's why this discussion with Sarah Holtz is so timely. An honors graduate of both Harvard Law and Yale College, she's a former Fortune 500 vice president, the author of Advice to My Younger Me, Career Lessons from 100 Successful Women, and the host of the highly rated podcast, Advice to My Younger Me. She's also received the American Bar Association's prestigious Margaret Brent Women Lawyers of Achievement Award in recognition of the impact that her work has had on helping women succeed. Now, after decades of successfully navigating corporate hierarchies and decades of work counseling hundreds of women about how to reach their vision of career success, Sarah is going to spend some time talking with us, about how to achieve the satisfying careers we all seek and deserve. What are the mindsets we need to adopt to keep progressing in our careers? What are the critical actions we need to take to achieve our career dreams? And how can we enlist others in helping us to reach our career goals? These are all questions we're going to look at. So, let's get started. Great. So, um, as Eric said... I'd love for this to be as interactive as possible. Um, so please, um, when we get to the interactive parts, uh, participate. But just <laughs> to kind of get it rolling, um, I would like everybody here to share with somebody who they didn't come with three things about themselves. And so I'm going to start off. So my three things are um, sea salt caramel ice cream is my favorite food. Um, I am the pet parent to a Havanese dog whose name is Kirby, and I've been a member of the Commonwealth Club for a very long time, and I am so humbled um, to be here uh, to be part of this group. So find somebody you don't know and share. Oh, wait. First, I'm going to have Eric do it. Well, first, <laughs> I forgot to come up with some things ahead of time, so we'll see what I can come up with. Um, Let's see. Well, I like railroads. Most people don't know that, so I go on train trips and stuff. And I've been working on the Internet since 1974, the very beginning when we had fewer than, I don't know, fewer than 100, fewer than 50 computers on it in the world. And, uh, of course, I played computer games on it. I wasn't, well, whatever. And the third thing, let's see. Oh, I have this, we were talking about, you know, home stuff. So I have this 
kind of vegetarian stew, which I called engineered stew, which has all the good stuff for you that's in it, none of the bad stuff, and tastes kind of boring, but there you are. So those are three things. Okay. <laughs> so um, hopefully, if either of us said anything that you find interesting, uh, you'll follow up with us um, when we have our wine cheese time together. But um, So I think maybe we should get into yeah, the... Yeah, let's get started. I mean, I, the first thing that occurred to me was, you know, why did you decide to write this book? How did this all start? So um, I have a podcast, which is called Advice to My Younger Me. There's several people here who've actually been on it. Um, I've been doing it for about seven years. Uh, there's close to 150 episodes. And the wisdom that was shared on this podcast was just incredible. Um, and people were so generous with their insights and what they wish they had known earlier in their career and all of those things. And I I thought, like, I want to share this broader, uh, more broadly. Um, and it turned out that um, as I said, there was close to 150 interviews, and I realized that even at 20 minutes a segment, nobody was going to sit down and listen to all 130 plus. So I thought, oh, well, I should write a book. And so then I went back and I read the transcripts of each of the interviews that I had done, and I realized that there were some threads that came through all the interviews, that there was a certain kind of... Um, consistency with the advice that people gave. And so that's really what the book is. It's it's um, just a compilation and kind of a uh, synthesizing mm. of what I heard in these 130-plus interviews with very successful women. With, with, with women, right. So <clears throat> and does this apply to men, too? I've got to ask. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, you read the book, does it? Well, I think so, actually. <laughs> But, you know, I'm, you know, an anecdote, plural of anecdote isn't data, right? Um, so what I've been told, um, first of all, my kind of mission and the focus mm -hmm. of my work for the last 25 plus years has been helping women succeed in the workplace. And so it was kind of natural that I would write a book that was focused on helping women succeed, um, I think, without any male bashing, um, men get plenty of help and how to succeed in the workplace and women could uh, use some extra help. I love the head nodding. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why I wrote the book the way I did. But I think in terms of the lessons that are in the book, I think they're pretty generic. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if I would say that men get massive amounts of help and some of it's misdirected. Well, we could vote on that. <laughs> Well, yeah, there were like a couple of guys in the audience, right? I'm going to get outvoted here. But, but there were a couple of things in the book that really struck me and uh, that I wish I had known mm -hmm. earlier that nobody was telling me. I mean, I was an engineer. It was like, do the work. You know, you do nose to the grindstone was the general attitude. Um, and you, you had a quote that I wrote down on a piece of paper here. You need to be good at your job and good at your career. And I thought that was really interesting. So why don't you talk about that? Sure. So, you know, I think, and again, I'm going to frame this in terms of what I've observed about women in the workplace, although I suspect it may be true as well for men, is that women are really good at doing the tasks that they've been assigned, right? Within the four corners of their job description, they, they, yeah. they excel at those kinds of things. Um, 
Where I think that they fall down is that they're not as good as staying focused on their careers and what needs to be done for them to have a successful career. Um, and I like to use this example of, um, which, you know, is very real world, um, of women, you know, you're about to give an important presentation and you've prepared all your slides, you've worked on them for weeks. Um, you want somebody, one of your um, coworkers comes by and says, hey, would you like to go out to lunch? This was, of course, in the before time. <laughs> and typically, I think most women would say, no, no, I want to go through one last time to make sure that there's not a typo in any of these slides. And my response to that is that's being really good at your job. But being good at your career would mean going out to lunch with your colleague because, you know, 20 years from now, whether there was a typo in that slide or not is not going to have a major impact on your career. But it's just possible that having lunch with that person might actually be important. And so it's this notion of thinking about the long term and what you need to do to succeed over a long period of time versus, you know, what's on your to-do list. And um, I think that, you know, that's something that women really need to focus on more. Because somebody one time said, if, um, if the workplace were like high school or, or any kind of school kind of that, that you went to, um, that women would real, rule the world. Because we're really good in school, right? You know, a vast majority of, of valedictorians from high school now are women, far, far, a far greater percentage than men. And it's like we're, we're, we're um, acculturated and we are rewarded for doing things that aren't, you know, that somebody describes as what our job is. So I think we need to spend a little more time thinking about, so what are the things that are going to move our careers forward? Yeah, I, uh, that really struck home to me when I read that, when I thought back over my career. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of men also, you know, this is, you know, you do the job in front of you and some hand will come down from the skies and promote you. Right. You know, the, the, the little, some marvelous thing will miraculously happen and it doesn't happen. And then we mutter to one, our, one another about politics. Well, it's politics, you know. Whereas really, we should be paying attention to what goes on in, in our career, just not our job only. So, okay, so what do I do? I, I want to look at my career. I want to take a broader view. Um, where do I start? What would you recommend? So um, what came through in these kind of... Um Lessons. I'm smiling because there are people here I, <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, uh, so I, as I went through all these interviews, 130 plus, um, there were themes that came through. And I think the single most important theme and the one that if this we were going to end in 10 minutes that I would want you to walk away from is that you need to take responsibility for how your career unfolds. And I think a lot of times people sit in what I call the passenger seat Mm -hmm. and they hope that things will unfold well, sort of the way that that Eric described it. Um, But typically, and you can think about this when you drive, sitting in the passenger seat 
is not a way to get yourself where you want to go, right? It's simple and it's easy, but it isn't the thing that necessarily takes you where you want to be. And so that's the first thing is to realize that you are in the driver's seat of your career. How it unfolds is your responsibility and that you need to actually um, invest time both not only in your job, but also in your career because you are responsible for how it unfolds. Your manager's goals may be slightly different than yours. He wants you to do a good job. Right. It might be a she. (laughs) In trouble already. All right. Yes, (laughs) go ahead. Write a little piece of paper that says, okay, from now on, replace this string, he, with he or she. I actually have to tell a quick story. (laughs) All right. Just to let... We're off. Right. Just to let Eric (laughs) off the hook. So I have a son... um, who, when he got out of college, worked at Bain Consulting. He's probably going to hate that I tell this story. But anyway, so one day he was telling me about his boss. And we were having this conversation. And I said, it had something to do with schools, like where they recruit from or whatever. And I said, oh, well, where did your boss go to school? Uh, And I said, "Uh, where, where did he go to school? And he stopped and he looked at me and there was this long pause. (laughs) And he's like, in the whole world, I can't imagine any person for whom that is a less appropriate way to phrase this. (laughs) He said, my boss Mm -hmm. is a woman. So all right. All right. No, I'm saying I've done it too. (laughs) And and yeah, that the point is that she has her own set of priorities. And she wants to produce work for her management. And that may not be your set of priorities. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it didn't occur to me for years. I just kind of assumed that my management was going to steer me and whatever. And it turns out that's, I mean, that may happen occasionally, but it's pretty rare. Right. So to your point. Okay. So the first one is to take responsibility for how your career unfolds. Um, the second one is to discover and focus on what your personal strengths are, mm-hmm. like where what you do adds the most to um, a project you're working on or a customer you're trying to sell or whatever. And um, there's lots of research that shows that focusing on our strengths and leveraging them in what we do produces much greater impact and results than does trying to to correct or improve our weaknesses. And, you know, I, I don't know what other people's experiences have been, but when I was in the corporate world, the way that my performance reviews always went was, oh, you're really good at blah, blah, blah. Now let's talk about all the opportunities for improvement here. And, you know, and that then was another 45 minutes of, and, and then it was only because somebody else was waiting in the lobby right. to come in next. And, at the time, I didn't realize it, but like that was so um, kind of counterproductive. What really people ought to be, have been doing was focusing on what it was that were my strengths and how could they be employed in that role. Um, so that's the second thing. Um, the third thing is about taking smart risks. And um, so many of the guests on my podcast talked about how the most important things that were the turning points in their careers was when they took a risk. Um, that was a risk. You know, there was no guarantee that it was going to turn out okay. 
But those were the things that really propelled their um, careers forward. So that's a really important thing. And and again, I think for women, that can be a challenge. Um, we tend to be risk averse. Uh, um, maybe everybody's risk averse, but my experience is that um, you see a lot of women who are risk averse. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to. It's just not just taking a risk for the hell of it. It's looking at really calculating. You know, where will this risk get me? What's the probability of succeeding? You know, what are my plans to do this? Not just saying, oh, I'm not going to take any risks. Or, woohoo, let's jump off the airplane. You know, it's, it's neither one of those. And we could literally have an entire conversation about how you take risks and how you mm-hmm. evaluate them and how you recover from when they don't work off out and um, all of that stuff. But unfortunately, we don't have all day. <laughs> so, so I'll move on to the next one, which I think is really important. Um, it's about investing in relationships. And I actually did a program earlier today. Um, and the question that my interviewer asked me was, why did you choose the word invest, investing in relationships? And I thought, why did I choose that word? And I realized that the reason I had chosen it is because investments are things that you you put energy into, you put resources into with the hope that over the long term they're going to actually result in an increased result, right? I mean, hopefully that's this may not be the perfect time to be talking about that in terms of investments, but typically <laughs> that is what our assumption is about what we're doing. And so what I would say is, and you know, this is a little bit controversial, but your relationships are probably the most important aspect, asset of your career. They're more important than your expertise, your experience, or even your credentials, is the relationships that you've built are really the thing which propels your your career forward. Um, And I'll I'll talk a little bit more about that because I think this is such an important um, arena. Um, The next thing is to ask for help. And um, I would say if there was one of these things that I did poorly in my career, it was about asking for help. Um, And I now recognize that there's someone out there who can help you with virtually any challenge that you're currently facing. It's just a question of thinking about who could help you and then actually going and asking them. And we'll talk a little bit later about like how you act to, in, the, in a way that's going to get the best result. Um, the next one is really a tough one, um, and that is to be visible. And um, mm-hmm. unfortunately... The concept of being visible has gotten kind of a bad reputation. It it starts with the fact that we talk about this word, which is being good at self-promotion, right? And like, who wants to be good at self-promotion? It's just a terrible sound. So I I kind of reframed it to this notion about being visible. But the, the thing about visibility is, in all likelihood, the most important opportunities in your career are going to be discussed in a room that you're not in, right? Your boss is, you're thinking about who's going to get the promotion, who's going to get the raise, who's going to be sent to the expensive training program, who's going to um, uh, be included in a high visibility project, right? 
most of those decisions are being made in a room where you aren't, right? So you can't advocate for yourself. So you really need to help other people, arm other people with the information that they need so that when they're in that room and you're being discussed, they can advocate for you. And um, I think that if you reframe it and realize that that's what you're doing, you're educating people about what you do and how well you do it. I hope that takes some of the sting out of it for being a braggart or whatever. And that, that that is what you, the reason to be visible is so that those people who are in that room when you're not there have the ammunition to actually support you in, in something that's going to move you forward. Um, and then the final one is to get feedback. Um, because the truth is, um, you know, we all need feedback to do our jobs better. We're, we're not necessarily particularly good at, at um, ferreting out what we're doing that's fabulous and what we're doing that's not. And I think it's, you know, a common, n- not so much misconception, but, but in terms of the way that people act, that we are reluctant to seek out feedback because we we just assume it's going to be negative, which is, you know, actually not true at all. Um, but um, one of the things I would urge is that if you aren't getting the feedback you need, that you actually go and ask for it. You know, don't wait for your performance review. Ask for feedback after that meeting that didn't go so well. Like, what could I have done that would have made it go better? Or, um, you know, how how do I deal with this difficult um, customer that I'm dealing with. I just came back from a sales call and it couldn't have been worse. Why? Oh, and, and that would build up that reputation of this person's really trying to help. Yes. You know, we had this call, it didn't go so great, but you know, she really came up afterwards and went, let's, let's go, how do I make this better? So that we're in the, when they're in that room and you're not there, this reputation is kind of out mm-hmm. there. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing about feedback is we always imagine it's going to be a lot worse than it is, right? (laughs) Um, Okay. So let's take a break for questions. I sort of laid out the the terrain that we're going to talk about, and then we can go in some depth on a few issues. But um, what's on your mind? Yeah. You mentioned taking risks. You give me an example of, like, what risks people took. Repeat the question, um, and I'll go get a mic. Okay. Um, So the question was, uh, I had talked about taking risks. What kinds of risks do people take? I mean, it's all over the board, right? They change jobs. Uh, they uh, applied for a job that they weren't 100% um, uh, qualified for, at least as far as the the job description went. There is actually data that says that men apply for jobs when they – and anybody who – uh, wants to contradict me can because I think I've got the data right um, that men apply for jobs when they meet 60% of the criteria and women only apply for jobs when they meet 100% of the criteria um, well guess what right um, as you know you get 0% of the the um, goals that you don't uh, attempt right so you can see how that could be a disadvantage to women um, so the risks, you know, maybe it's moving across the country, maybe taking an international assignment. Um, maybe it's just speaking up at the company meeting or something like that. So risks come, there's little risks and then there's really big risks. Um, you know, I took uh, some pretty major risks in my life. Um, I quit a good corporate job that I had and I started a business. Uh, and the truth was... 
that the business failed. <laughs> and then I started another business. And that one failed too. And then finally, I started a business that was a success beyond my wildest dreams. And most importantly, it was a, a job that I loved and, um, and that I felt, you know, was really make, having an impact on people. So, I mean, as I look back at it, I took a lot of risks. But I don't even think about it that way. They were just things that happened in my career they gave me some more information about what my strengths were and what the market was and all of those kinds of things. And that in the end, um, you know, they seemed like, I mean, these were real business failures. <laughs> these were businesses I had to uh, shut down. Like it didn't really make much difference in my life. I mean, at the moment, it didn't feel at all good. But, um, but ultimately, it took, got me to a place that was really a good place. So... Thanks for the question. Anybody else? Yeah. I, uh, I have a question. I'm Veronica. Hi, Veronica. Hi. Um, so my question is maybe it's like an adv- uh, advice probably. So what do you do in a situation? Because it, it, it was mentioned that the our supervisors, they have other plans, right? right. They want us to do a good job. They want and, to do what? It's going to make them look yeah, good, yeah. be successful. And then yeah, we have sense. the responsibility to... Uh, look for other opportunities, gaining skills, right? We are our own advocate in the professional world. So what do you do um, if your boss, yes, they're they're willing to help you, but they're bombarded with work? Mm-hmm. And so so what do, what do you do? Well, uh, and, and that's a very real situation. Um, so first of all, I, I actually have two answers to that. When I say that you have to work on your career at the same time that you work at your job, that's not 50% of the time on your career and 50% of the time on your job. Like maybe all you're spending is 5% of your time on your career, what I would call your career. Um, So I think, you know, you can sort of carve that out and look for something that you're not, that is not having an impact on the organization that you could maybe do a C-plus job on instead of your usual A A job, uh, which might free up time for you to do something that was actually moving your career forward. Um, The second thing I think, and this is actually true about almost anything that you do in approaching your boss, is to think about how you can phrase what you're asking for in a way that shows what the benefit to them is going to be and also what the benefit to the organization is going to be. So, are you going to get more clients as a result of doing this thing that you want to do? That's let's say you want to go to a conference. That's that's the thing you want to do to uh, expand your network of relationships and also to learn some new things. And explain to your boss how this sending you to this conference, which is going to take you out of the office and it's going to be sixteen hours that you didn't work that week, is actually going to be of benefit to them and to the organization. So to try and phrase things in such a way that you, that you are showing them what the benefit is, um, not to you, but to them. Does that make some sense? I think there was another question. Yeah. Um, a lot of the things you talk about in terms of like taking risks or asking to go to the conference, et cetera, I feel like take a lot of confidence or mm. take initiative and for people who don't have that, do you have any suggestions on like building that confidence or taking the step 
mm-hmm. to like take sure. the initiative. Well, I think sometimes you just have to just do it. Um, you know, um, thank you, Nike. Um, hey, you, you grabbed but, the mic, didn't you? Yeah, yep, there looked, you are. You're yeah. starting. Yeah, <laughs> um, and actually, that's another good point, which is you can start with baby steps. You don't have to go for like I want a promotion. You could be like, oh, I'd like to be on that team and work on that project, right? And again, frame it like. I think I bring this perspective to it that nobody else does, and I think it would help the project um, well. Um, the other thing that, I, that I've found, and actually it's in some of it is in the book, um, is to think about the things that you have done that have given you confidence in the past. Mm. So when I asked, uh, I asked many of the people I interviewed about that, and I, they were like all over the map. Um, some people were like, I have my power suit that I wear, right? And that's what I do. Some people said, I make sure I get a good night's sleep the night before. Um, somebody else said, I make sure I don't drink the night before. Um, and these were like about, you know, let's say you're doing um, a, an event or you're pr- making a presentation or something like that. Um, some people said, in the shower, I play my power music. I mean, so it's worthwhile to think about the things that have given you confidence and then to put them as kind of your in, in your confidence-building box and and pull them out on a regular basis, right? You know, if, if um, talking to your best friend before you do something hard is something that gives you confidence, do it. Right. You know, and we all have those things. And then what you'll discover is that they expand. You find more and more things that give you confidence. Um, And, you know, they just become part of your repertoire. And so they're really helpful to you because the truth is all of us, you know, are afraid of of doing a lot of these things. It's just a question of what is it going to take for me to get to feel comfortable doing it to get me beyond that reluctance. And Eric made a really good point, which is you did ask for the microphone. And I'm sure there's people here who, who are feeling uncomfortable about that. <laughs> Hi. Uh, you've talked about the, the courage to take a risk. What do you do in an organization if you've taken on a project or stepped out in front and failed in the project? And in hindsight, you know that it was your fault. That's different when you're still in the organization. That's different from failing in your own entrepreneurial venture. Mm-hmm. What kind of advice do you give to somebody? Because I've seen many, many people who have a failure in the organization and they never recover from it. Yeah. Well, I think first, I mean, we could have a whole conversation about failure and how you um, recover from your mistakes. Um, but the first thing is that you take responsibility for it. That's, that's the number one thing. Like when I, I managed a lot of people and the one thing that drove me nuts, and I actually told them this when when they first came to work for me, is that, you know, if you don't take responsibility for your mistakes, it's just me, uh, uh, you know, I just, um, it's not pretty. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think the first thing is to acknowledge the mistake that you made, to, to um, fix it if you can. If you can't say what you're going to do in the future to avoid it, I one time had a. I uh, this is actually a story in the book, I think, um, and I say I think because if anybody's written a book, it went through five edits. I actually don't know what's in the book anymore. <laughs> there, there was stuff that got uh, taken out, but um, I had a boss, and I made a what I considered to be a. Um, 
perhaps a career killer uh, of something I did. And I went to him and I kind of, you know, sheepishly said, I, I didn't do this thing I should have done. I was a lawyer. So, you know, this thing that I didn't do, it was pretty important. Um, or at least in the scheme of things, it seemed important. And um, he said to me, uh, can you fix it? And I said, I really can't. And he said, okay, well, you have to go and apologize to the person that it has the primary effect on, and then you have to let it go. He said, you are better than that mistake. And I take, I t- have taken that phrase of mm-hmm. you are better than that mistake with me into every situation in which I have made a mistake, which is, yes, it was a mistake. It was serious. I took it seriously. I realized what I had done wrong. I apologized to the people it affected. I told them what I was going to do in the future. And then I stopped ruminating on it, about it. And one of the things I think happens to people is that they just get in this cycle where they're replaying, I made this mistake, you know, how stupid was I, all of those kinds of things, which really, you know, send you not to a good place. And I think this ability to sort of say, okay, that wasn't good, um, but I'm better than that, and move on is really like the critical part about making mistakes and moving on. So I'd love all the head nodding I'm getting. We should, we should get back on topic here. We you had talked we about are on topic. The, yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> well, I made a mistake, and I would like to acknowledge the fact. <laughs> what? How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. So I, I had a note that we were going to talk a bit about the importance of investing in relationships. Yes. And, 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 you know, why is that important and how, you know, kind of, how do we do this? One? Well, this couldn't be a better audience for me to um, be talking about this because there are definitely people in this audience who have been major contributors to my success. And in fact, I just want to call out um, Carol Fleming, who's in the back. And without Carol, I wouldn't be here. Um, she she is, leads the member-led forum on the board. She's responsible for them on the board of the Commonwealth Club. And when I told her I had a book coming out, um, Carol had several books herself, um, she said, oh, maybe you should come and talk at the uh, Commonwealth Club. I am certain Mm-hmm. That if I had written a blind, um, blind inquiry, like, hey, can I come and talk at the Commonwealth Club, somebody else would be sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's a perfect example mm-hmm. of that, the relationships. And um, my my mentor, um, Mary Cranston, who I don't even know she knows that she is my mentor. <laughs> what? Yeah, my buddy, but who has provided me with just an you know, enormous amount of wisdom and encouragement and told me to pick myself up and, and dust myself off over the years. Um, so, I mean, this room is perfectly reflective, and I know that there are more of you here that I should shout out, but 
probably um, we'd be here all night. So, <laughs> so thank you to all those people. But what I would say is that, um, you know, relationships are probably the most valuable asset of your career. And I said that before mm-hmm. when I said that, you know, your expertise, I was a lawyer, my experience, I had jobs as lawyers, um, you know, my credentials, I had, I have good credentials, um, that, um, I don't think any of those things were nearly as important to my career success as the relationships that I cultivated and nurtured. And, you know, the people that, you know, I just want to run through this list of things because I think sometimes we, we don't really appreciate how much people can help us and we, we think we have to do it on our own. Um, so the people you know can serve as references um, they can send you referrals. One of the things I always acknowledge is that my entire successful business, not my unsuccessful businesses, was <laughs> based on referrals from people who were my clients, you know, and who I consider my friends. Um, they can give you advice. They can share information that is not Googleable, like, um, you know, if you want to get a project greenlighted, how, who do you have to have on board? Right, you'll never figure that out if somebody doesn't tell you. Um, they can introduce you to people you should know. Um, they can recommend you for promotions. They can alert you to new job opportunities. They can advocate on your behalf. Um, they can recommend emergency childcare. Um, they can tell you what it's like to work at a company that you're thinking about mm-hmm. working at. Um, they can do practice interviews for you. They can nominate you for awards. Um, uh, Eric mentioned that I was um, fortunate enough to receive the Margaret Brand Award, um, and that's because Mary nominated me for it. Um, uh, they can tell you that which activities you're involved in that are a waste of time. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we we all gone to join groups or gone to meetings or whatever that were a waste of time. Um, they can recommend you for speaking opportunities, as Carol did. Um, and my network has done. Everything I just listed, my network has done those things for me. Um, And so I think that recognizing the importance of those relationships and nourishing them, and that's a really important part, is making, you really need to make that a priority. Um, And um, so I guess that's my answer to why think investing in relationships is so important. Do you, do you want to do a little exercise, or do you think we have time for that? Um, we can. Um, <laughs> thank you mm-hmm. <laughs> for reminding me. So, again, try and find somebody you didn't talk to before, um, and that may mean you may actually have to get up and walk around the room a little bit. But talk about, identify one person in your life who has actually helped you in your career. And, um, you know, how, how did they help you? So, you know, I mentioned a number of people who are here. Um, so just share that. Just somebody who's, who's really helped you in your um, career and how did they do it? What did, what did they do for you that helped move your career forward? Yeah. Does, does anybody want to share, like, what they shared? 
Hi, I'm Monet. And I was telling Lisa that when I was fresh out of college, I had a friend's dad who was at lunch with me and he was like, hey, Monet, have you ever considered being in sales? Like, I think you'd be really good. I was like, no, I didn't go to school for sales. He's like, well, let me just introduce you to the VP of sales of this company and just see what you think. Um, To make a really long story short, we met. I adored her. She hired me for the job and I was like 12 to 15 years younger than everyone by far. Um, And it went really well. And then she became my mentor and she actually still is my mentor, even though I no longer work with her and she's helped me get other jobs. So um, it was like a friend of a friend and then turned into a bigger relationship. That's great. So can I ask a couple of follow-up questions mm-hmm. on that? So what did you do to continue to build that relationship? Because that could have been a one-off, right? Um, yeah. So um, she was my boss, so I had to, you know, have right. weekly one-on-ones <laughs> with her. Um, but then whenever I actually moved abroad and could no longer work for the company um, due to my husband's job, and whenever I was abroad, I just stayed in touch. Like, we followed each other on social media. We would do, like, Zoom calls. And then um, anytime she was in town or in the area, we would, like, meet for lunch. And then eventually she started her own coaching business, and she asked me to be one of her, like, test projects or, like, well, not projects, but test people. Um, and even to this day, like we probably have like a monthly, you know, 30 minute Zoom just to catch up. And I will say there are times when I'm like, oh, I'm too busy. Like I don't want to meet. But every time there's so much value and um, it's always worth it. I love that story. Thank you. Eric, would you reward her with <laughs> Oh, thank you. <laughs> Anybody else? As I said, all good, good things come to those. <laughs> Hi. Uh, so for me, uh, I share that uh, my friend Kathy, I met her 15 years ago when we work at the same foundation. Uh, we've been friends since then, and the way she supported me through the years, it has been through helping me uh, with uh, reviewing my resume, my cover letters, uh, uh, providing me with career advice, and the most important thing, sharing uh, her friendship is one of my best friends. I just saw her at the gym and I was um, just sharing with her that I want to start a social entrepreneurship uh, business. So we're going to make some time to meet and, um, you know, hear, get some tips from her. Some brainstorming. Yes. Excellent. Yes. Okay, great. Uh, we also were going to talk a bit about asking for help. Sure. And you so I think I said that. to you that... Um, as I look back on my career, the thing that of those, not that I did everything perfectly of the eight things we talked about, but the one I failed at was about asking for help. And um, so I want to give you some tools because I think that asking for help is one of the things that can really leverage your um, moving forward in your career. Um, so when I think about asking for help, I think about it as two parts. One of them is what I call the inside job. And one of them is what I call the outside job. And the inside job is giving yourself permission to actually ask for help. And I think sometimes women don't ask for help uh, for a number of reasons. One of them is they think it's going to be a big imposition on somebody. And oftentimes, the things which are incredibly valuable to you are actually not that hard for other people to do. So for example, certain introductions are like very valuable um, to you. And you say to somebody, um, you know, would you introduce me to 
so-and-so. And they're like, sure. You know, as far as they're concerned, it's a big nothing. And you can actually make it easier for them to do it by actually drafting the email and whatever so that all they have to do is hit send. But again, like to you, it may be, you know, career altering. And to them, it's just somebody who's in their network of relationships that they're happy to reach out for because they like you and they like them and might actually work out well for the other person. Um, so the second reason is, um, and again, I, I'm, since I've never been a non-woman, I don't know if it also affects <laughs> non-women, um, but um, it's, it's, women are afraid that it's a sign of weakness or incompetence, right? Like that I have to ask you for help on this means that I'm not capable enough. And um, one of the guests on my show, well, first of all, um, I have a very good friend, and she says, when you talk about, is it okay to ask for help? She said, uh, remember that life is not a closed book exam. And I think that that's such a great point, which is like, you don't, you're not supposed to already know how to do it well, right? And another one of my guests said something, I thought that, that this was so powerful. No one, I mean, no one has accomplished anything of significance by themselves, so don't think that you have to go get help. And I just think that, you know, that's such a kind of empowering statement. Um, and so I think those are the two things that you need to recognize is one, that um, it's it, not necessarily an imposition. And secondly, that, you know, it's not a rec- it's not a display of weakness or incompetence or lack of resources or whatever it might be um, that it is actually again going back to that thing about demonstrating that you're really invested in your career asking for help can actually signal to that person like I'm really um, I'm really interested in moving forward and I can't do it without some help from other yeah, people. I want to make a point if you if you look at people's careers and you hear about Thomas Edison or Ford or these guys, they didn't do it by themselves. Um, usually you need you know, the innovator, the guy who does stuff. You need someone who keeps the books, who's a different person. And you need someone who sells things, who's a different person. It's all, you almost never see all three in one person, and which is just an example of you know, needing other people, working with other people, cultivating relationships with other people who can help you in different areas. Mm-hmm. And it's easy for them. You know, just because it's difficult for you, they may love doing it and they may be really good at it. So ask. So then I said, so that's the inside job, like empowering yourself to say it's okay to ask for help. Then there's the what I call the outside job, which is like, how do you make the ask mm-hmm. so that you're most likely to get the response that you want? And I have a few tips on that. The first thing is, whatever you're asking for should be, I call it, non googleable <laughs> Meaning that when the person receives the ask, they realize, like, you've selected them because they have some special expertise that's not kind of available in the, in the world at large, right? And so they feel flattered by the fact that you've acknowledged that and feel more likely, like, they're not going to feel like you didn't do your homework. Why, why, why are you coming to me to ask me for this? You could check it out in, you know, on the internet. Um, the, the second thing is that you want to make your ask 
as specific as possible. And the reason for this is the more specific your ask is, the more likely the person is going to be able to respond to it. And so um, one of my one of the people on the uh, podcast said that she thinks every good ask in- includes the word one. So do you know one person who's a product manager in a tech firm that I could talk to about what that role is? You're not asking that person to like, you know, spend hours going through their um, LinkedIn or whatever. You're asking for one thing. Or do you have one tip for me about how to deal with this difficult boss that I have? Let me tell you a little bit about the background of the person. What's one thing that I could do that might improve this relationship? And again, this kind of limits the ask to something that's very doable and that people are likely to to want to respond to. And then the final thing is make it as easy as possible for them. And so I gave that example about draft. If you want to be introduced to somebody, draft the email and say, you know, feel free to revise it, but um, maybe this will help you kind of make it easy. And I can tell you uh, from experience that, uh, you know, when I get things like that, people say, would you introduce me to somebody or can you, you know, uh, nominate me for something or give me a reference for something. If somebody gives me the information, I'll just hit send. I mean, I'm happy to do that. If you tell me, could you like write a reference for me? You know, and I'm like, I can't even remember when I worked with you. What did we, you know, what did we do? So that that's much, I think that's really important. It's to make it as easy as possible for the person to respond. And then the final one, and I'm going to tell a little story about this, is make it appropriate to your relationship. Um, like there's some people who are very good friends and you can ask them for the world. And there's some people who you met um, at the Commonwealth Club at the um, at the wine and cheese after this. And this is the first time you've had them. Well, those people are on the spectrum of, of what's an appropriate ask for them. And I one time had somebody call me up um, and they had, they didn't call me up. They actually sent me an email through LinkedIn and they said, could I have an hour of your time to talk about your business? Well, I didn't know this person at all. And an hour of my time, that's a lot of time, right? So I wrote back and said, you know, I'd be happy if you could tell me what you want to talk about. I'd be happy to respond to a question. So the person wrote back and said, I'm starting a business which is competitive with your business. Remember, <laughs> you know where this is going, right? Oh, boy. I'm <laughs> uh, starting a business which is competitive with your business, and I'd like to pick your brain, right? <laughs> I'm like, well, that is a little more specific than the first one. <laughs> but I don't know you, and why am I going to share with you, like, all the learning from my business so that you're more effective in competing against me. And so that's an ask, needless to say, by the laughter. You realize that (laughs) that was inappropriate for what our relationship was. Now, if somebody I knew very well, if Michelle called me up and asked me that, I would spend hours with her, sharing with her what I had learned and what I thought was what she should do and all of those things. But 
that's because we have a very different relationship. Michelle has been an incredible supporter of my work for many years. And, you know, I would love to help her. So that's one of the other things is, and that isn't to say that you can't ask people that you don't have a very good relationship with or an extensive relationship Mm -hmm. with for a favor. It's just that the favor needs to be appropriate to that relationship. So it might be, if I don't know you at all, I might say, I really loved your book. What's another book that you think would really help me in my career, right? Like that would be a completely appropriate um, ask for anybody in this audience 10 minutes mm-hmm. from now. So those yeah. are those are my yeah, I'd like to go for a final round of questions. Sure. And, you know, those of you who are online, remember that you can uh, write your questions in the chat at any time. Um, and those in the club, remember we've got, you know, wine and cheese afterwards, so we can have a big discussion. But I do have and an are online question. are you sorry question. you're not here? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Show up. <clears throat> Get out of the house. Good for you. Um, so I do have an interesting question here. Do you have any advice or tips for women whose career was hindered by having babies or young children? Boy, I actually have some pretty controversial views on this. <laughs> so this isn't going to help this person particularly. I will, I will get to that. Um, but I think that if there is any way that you can stay in the workforce in some form, even when you have small children, that's the thing to do. There, the data is very strong that women who leave the workforce for a prolonged period of time never catch up. They don't catch up. Um, and again, we could have a discussion about what a long period of time is. Um, but people who leave a year, not such a big deal. Um, people who leave 10 years, very hard to get back into the workforce. And, and at, at a comparable level, on a com- comparable career trajectory, whatever. Um, so I think when, it, you know, this actually is something I feel very strongly about. I, I'm afraid that women leave the workforce. Let me tell you that there were many days, I have two, at the time, had two small children. Um, there were many days that it was all I could do to not walk into my boss's office and just say, I've had it, right? Sayonara. Um, but fortunately, I didn't do it. Um, and so I, I completely empathize with people who are like, it's just too hard to raise kids and be in a demanding job. Um, but I'm really glad I didn't do it because I actually didn't understand what the consequences were. And I think a lot of women leave the workforce not really understanding the financial implications, the career trajectory implications, Mm -hmm. the personal um, uh, implications, like what's my identity going to be, the loss of skills, all of these things. I mean, I could go on and on. And it's only when they try and get back into the workforce after having been out for three years, five years, ten years, that they realize that they didn't really think it through. And so, you know, I would like to really encourage people to understand what the consequences are of leaving and, if at all possible, to figure out some way to keep your toe in. Um, And that might be, you know, working part-time or becoming a consultant or – or volunteering in a role that really has to do with what your business skills are, like being the, you know, the the treasurer of an organization if you're in finance or something like that. Um, so I think that that's probably, you know, I, I feel quite strongly about this because I think I think people really don't 
weigh the consequences as much as they could and should. Yeah. yeah. But if you're you're out, then it's a relationship problem, I suspect. Is there somebody? Well, it's a relationship problem, and it's also a problem of not keeping up with one, your network of relationships, because that's how you're going to get back in. You know, the statistic is that um, 70% of all people who are looking for a new job get a job through a person that they know. And interestingly, Mm -hmm. and this is what's really important, interestingly, it is not a person that they know well. It's not their best friend. And the reason why that's so important is to under, I mean, once you, once I say this, it's going to become obvious to you, which is your best friend tends to operate in the same circles you do. You know, I was a lawyer. All my friends were lawyers. They were lawyers at the same level, all of those kinds of things, right? In order for me to find a new opportunity, I had to expand my circle. And the people who expand your circle are the people who are not in your innermost circle. So Basically, the people who are most likely to help you find a job or alert you to a job opportunity are people who have a whole other network themselves that is different than yours because that's where the information is coming from. So um, so I would say, one, you know, you need to stay in touch with people and mm-hmm. not, not 10 years later call up somebody whose office was next door to yours and say, hey, remember me? I'm looking for a job now. I'd like to come back into the workforce. Um, The second thing I would say is that you need to keep up your skills. And some arenas are worse than others. I mean, I think in tech, tell me if that's true. I mean, two years out of tech is a long time, right? I'm actually asking somebody in the audience who I know is in tech. Um, You know, in the law, not so much, but... um, because the law doesn't change that much that quickly. Um, but again, you know, now people have different ways of doing billing and they have different ways of, of um, using technology mm-hmm. and all of those kinds of things. So I think it's really important if you are going to be out of the workforce to figure out some way to both stay connected to your network and also to stay current on your skills. You know, there's a bunch of people in this audience who probably have even better answers than I do. Anybody want to jump in? Ida? We had a, a question over here. Yeah, okay. So um, we went rogue, and we're talking about this when we were supposed to be talking about relationships because all three of us are new moms. Oh, congratulations. Um, yeah, thank you, and they say thank you also. Um, <laughs> I I was wondering I actually if you... know what Olivia looks like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's the cutest Don't tell our kids. But... Um, so... Can you talk a little bit about the cycles of career growth? Sure. Um, I think all three of us, we're all three working, um, but we're surviving, I think. Right. Um, and uh, I know all of us are feeling like we want to grow and um, want to continue to find what lights us up and what we can really bring to our various fields, but also just sort of like, okay, can I just be in maintenance mode for a while right. and then like reboot um, and what does rebooting look like? So just hearing a little bit from the women you spoke with and from your own experience about like having faith in that cycle process if you do keep your toe in. So I think um, it's a great question. We got a book for us. Results. <laughs> Emily doesn't get a book because she already has one. <laughs> That'll have to be our last one. But this is our last question? Yeah. Um, we, we'll still be able to talk out right. there. Um, so I, it's a great point, you know, and one of the women in um, who I interviewed talked about the fact that when you're sitting where you are, 
you think this is what life is going to be like forever. And in point of fact, you know, you've heard the saying, the days are long, but the years are short, right? That you won't be in a place where this little person is requiring the kind of intense care that you're that you're doing right now. And so you can have, you know, peaks and valleys to your career. Um, And so that's one thing I would say. The other thing, again, I think the staying, you know, keeping your skills up and keeping your network up are important. And the final thing I'm going to say is that I think you have very, you have more limited time than I do to invest in my career. Um, you need to be super smart about how you're spending your time. So like I would say, investing in relationships is really important and staying visible because, you know, if you're leaving the office at five o'clock, you're not as visible as the person who's there at eight o'clock, right? That you have to be very strategic about how it is that you're spending your the time that you're investing in your career as opposed to your job is being spent. And that's not easy, but I think that that, that kind of says, how do you, how do you, that's another form of keeping your toe in is just being really smart about when you're spending time on these things um, that you're, that, you know, they're paying off. So I hear we don't have any more questions, huh? Well, we're running out of time. Oh, okay. problem. well, yes, we have, we have run out of time. Okay. So, Our gratitude to Sarah Holtz for being with us today. We're also grateful to our audience here, as well as those listening to the recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating its 119th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.